All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, well, we have uh, <clears throat> uh, this morning reading a scripture. Actually, my wife was supposed to read this morning, um, but she's at the hospital um, with the Halsey family, and so I'm going to read for us this morning. We, we read scripture uh, as a church because um, God commanded us to. It's uh, one of the things in, the, in uh, the pastoral epistles that Paul said to give attention to the reading of scripture, right? And so that's what we do. And, uh, and so we are, we're doing that. We're standing because, you know, in Nehemiah's day when they read the word of God, they all stood. And so that's what we're doing. And so this morning we're reading 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verses 10 through 23. This will be the text that we preach from this morning. Uh, you'll notice that there's a page number there on the screen. Uh, it's page 953 in the Pew Bible. If, uh, if you don't have one, I, I know what that's like. I, I came to church for the first time. I was pretty scared out of my mind and uh, an 18-year-old kid and didn't know anything. I didn't have a Bible, and uh, they gave me one. So this is a gift for you. Please take one. Um, you can lift that. This is the one place where we say you can take it and run away with it, but don't do that anywhere else, okay? But you can lift a Bible at Parkside Bible Church. It's okay, all right? So uh, 1 Corinthians 3. 10 through 23, uh, this is the reading of God's word. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive, your <clears throat> Let no one dece deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. It's been the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to study it. May God you guide us and lead us this morning uh, as we work our way through this passage. Uh, may God you be glorified in our time. May you help me uh, to communicate clearly what it is uh, that you are saying through this text. And may your spirit uh, work in each and every one of our lives this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right. So, uh, we are looking, uh, working our way through 1 Corinthians. Uh, you'll see this morning we have uh, our text, chapter 3, 10 through 23. The title is uh, The Significance of the Church. Um, this is unusual. I do have my phone with me up here. Just want you to know I'm not waiting for a phone call or anything. Um, I had one of those deals where yesterday was just kind of crazy between uh, the hospital and between being down at Wheeler Mission and then kids homecoming at Brownsburg. It was kind of crazy and um, my uh, iPad got plugged in, quote unquote, but it didn't get plugged in. And so... Um, I'm praying that I have enough battery juice. If I don't, go into the old phone to find my notes, and we're going to be doing this number. So we're hoping that this will survive. So uh, that's why that's there. just want you to know. All right. Um, so 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 23. Let's begin. How many of you uh, enjoyed playing with Legos as a kid? Come on, show of hands. How many of you still enjoy playing with Legos? Okay, good. All right, I thought, that's right, be honest about that, right? Um, as a kid, uh, in, I grew up in Virginia, 
And uh, if I wasn't out hunting birds, which was my thing, by the way, my BB gun, and some of you may be very sad about that fact, but I loved shooting birds. Um, I, can go, I can go on to that later, long story into that, but I would spend many hours out in the farm shooting birds. Um, my grandpa would give me like five bucks if I kill crows because they ate the tobacco, the tobacco uh, leaves off the, uh, we had tobacco farms in Virginia. And so uh, if I wasn't out shooting, uh, shooting birds, hunting birds, uh, or playing with my matchbox cars, which was my other uh, hobby that I loved doing, I would be building Legos um, and building structures. And a lot of times, even if it wasn't Legos, I was building with constructs. I don't know if anybody remembers constructs, but man, those were, right? Phil Zimmerle's following me on this one, right? Those, those were awesome. I don't know what happened to them. They went away. Legos absor- absorbed them or something. Anyway, the, the Lego uh, company was founded in August 10th, 1932 in uh, Billund, Denmark, by a carpenter named Olkirk Christensen. It's a very nice Denmark, uh, Danish name. Uh, the Danish word leg, leggat means play well, which is where uh, Olkirk got the name Lego from. Uh, in 1947, they stopped making them out of wood. That's what they did for the first decade or so, was make them out of wood, and began to manufacture the current Lego bricks that we're all familiar with today. Today, now, there are factories all over the world uh, making Legos at about a 20 billion a year clip. We make about 20 billion Legos a year around the world with 2.16 million Legos uh, molded every hour, 36,000 of them made every minute around the world. Um, that's more than 600 billion Lego bricks have been produced overall since 1947, 600 billion of them. On average, there are 62, this how many Legos are in the world, on average there are 62 Lego bricks for every person on planet Earth. And the world's children spend, on average, five billion hours a year playing with them. This all has spawned now uh, eight different Legoland theme parks, 26 Legoland discovery centers, over 100 Lego TV series, and four Lego franchise films, with a fifth in development right now because everything is awesome. There we go. All right, you're following me. Good. Everything is awesome. You'll have that song in your head now for, like, days. Everything is awesome. Everything, okay, sorry. So, um, so, so point being is obviously we like to build. As kids, we like to build. As adults, we like to build, right? We like to do this, whether it's Legos, whether it's homes, whether it's skyscrapers or cathedrals. And what we find in our text today is that God also likes to build, okay? He likes to build. Um, and his building project and what he's building is called the church. And it is massively significant. And at the very, the very heart of God for you, his love for you as a local church at the very heart of God for the mission to the world is the church, right? That's why it's so significant and so important. Back in uh, verse 9, right before our text we read this morning, Paul made the statement that we are, he says, we are God's building, right? He says that in verse 9, God's building at the end. He builds on that thought and continues going. And, And when he says we're God's building, understand, and this may be new for you, when he says that the church is God's building, he's not speaking of uh, brick and mortar. Okay? He's not spe- speaking of a building. He's speaking of the people of God, speaking of those people who, who love Jesus, who are following Jesus together and seeking to know him and make him known in the world. Right? That's, that's what the church as defined in the Bible is. It's not a building. It's a people. And so in our text today, <clears throat> wow, sorry. In our text today, uh, we're going to go on site, as it were. We're going to go uh, on site to the church building project uh, that Jesus is constructing. And we're going to, as we're put our hard hats on, and we're going we're gonna to see up close just how significant the church is. Uh, we will see uh, in our text today, we're going to see a couple of things, actually six different things we're going to see today. We're going to see that we have a foundation, that each of us have a job, 
on this building project. Uh, we're going to have an inspection that's coming up. We have a, a current resident taking up location in this building we're building, and we have upkeep, and we also have, for all you insurance guys, we have insurance as well, all right? So that's our, our six implications of the church as a building. Okay, that's what we'll look at today. Number one, we have a foundation. Verse 10 begins, according to the grace of God given me, Paul says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Okay, so Paul calls himself here this skilled master builder. It's one word in the Greek. It's not three. It's, it's only one word in the Greek language. By the way, Greek is what the original language of the New Testament is. And so in that original language, we have a word that is used called arch- architecton. Sound familiar? It's where we get our English word architect from. Paul says, I'm an architect. That's what he says. But the word, the Greek word has more to do than just um, architectural work. It carries also the idea of uh, combining that with an engineer and even uh, almost like a contract, general contractor as well, all wrapped up into one person is kind of the idea. And that's why the English says skilled master builder. Like he's, he's all of those things, he says. And so, uh, so the, the architecton, this word, this guy was responsible to hire subcontractors and other workers to make sure he gets the job done. His primary task was to design the building, and, his, and the primary task there in design it was to make sure that the foundation um, was laid properly, because that was the most important part of the building, right, is to get that foundation right. So he says in verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the foundation is important, right? The foundation is ultimately what stabilizes and unifies the building. You see, you can build the, the most beautiful of structures, and you can win awards in design. You can get accolades in the community for your beautiful building that you've made. But if the foundation is faulty, it will all come down eventually and become rubble. And here's what, here's what we all need to understand about this. We all build on some foundation. Okay? We all build on some foundation. We're all building. It's a question of what, what are we building on? For the church, for the people of God... For those who have the, the Spirit of God, as Paul has laid out in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 3, um, for those, he says, the foundation is Jesus Christ, which provides stability and provides unity in the church. Remember, his whole argument here in the first four chapters is about unity. That's what he's about. Chapter 1, verse 10, he pleads with them to be unified. And everything he's saying here on is trying to build that unity back. And so having a solid foundation builds that unity and builds that stability for life. And that's what everybody wants. No matter what your your creed is, no matter what your belief is, or your understanding of God today, you're all building on something, and whatever that something that you're building on, you want that foundation to bring you unity and bring you stability, right? We all want that. Uh, No one wakes up in the morning, hopefully not at least, thinking, how can I make a decision today that will completely ruin my life? How can I create discord today in all of my relationships? How can I disrespect someone so badly that they will turn around and hate me? Right? We don't want that. We don't wake up wanting that kind of discord or disunity. We, we instead desire our foundation of life to provide unity, peaceful, harmonious relationships with other people, right? We want that. Also, no one wakes up thinking, you know, I hope, I really hope today that life throws me a curveball that I just can't hit. It would be great. It would be awesome to experience a trial that will make my entire world fall apart. Hopefully, someone will say something to me today that provides me with an emotional breakdown, right? No one wakes up thinking these things. We instead, we long for a foundation in life that will help us withstand the storms of life, that will provide us with security and strength 
to face criticism, the things that come our way, which next week we'll deal with in chapter 4. Paul's going to talk a lot about criticism. You see, every religion, every worldview, every person seeks some kind of law, some kind of rule, some kind of path, uh, some kind of person to point them to how to build a good foundation for life, right? They all do. This is why most of the religions of the world can exist apart from their founder. He, she, whatever is the, the leader of that religion is not the foundation. Rather, they point you to how to build your own foundation. So if you think about that, that's what Paul is saying. But Paul is saying that Jesus is the foundation, right? He is Christianity. He is what it is all about. You don't need Buddha to have Buddhism. You don't need Ron L. Hubbard to have Scientology. But in Christianity, you need Jesus or you don't have Christianity. You see the difference there? Jesus doesn't say, you know, that, that, that over there is the truth as far as I can perceive it. Once you follow that, and, uh, and you'll have a foundation for life. It doesn't say that. Instead, Jesus says, I am the, what? The truth, right? Follow what? Me, and you'll have a foundation for life, you see? So it's a, a very different, he is the actual foundation to the whole thing. Some of you will not come to Jesus because you feel like you have a solid foundation already. You're, you're pretty good, right? You've, you've built yourself a pretty good foundation in life, whatever that foundation is. I was in the hospital yesterday sitting with, with, uh, with Jack and we were just him and I in the room talking for a while, and um, you know, I always ask this question when I have someone there, and it's not meant to be morbid or anything else, but one of the questions I always ask is, like, are you, are you ready to meet Jesus, if that's the case? Are you ready? Are you prepared? And of course, Jack's like, yes. And I said, uh, I said why, why do you think people aren't prepared? You know, why do people they aren't ready? And we, we started having this conversation. Jack and I are talking about this for about an hour and a half. And we, we talked about this whole idea that, that in our, our society, affluence or perceived competency is one of the greatest obstacles or hindrances to the gospel because we feel like, you know, I've built a good foundation, right? I've built a good foundation for life. I'm good. Suburban America, this is one of the greatest hindrances. You may lean on your morality. You know, I'm a pretty good person. That, that's my foundation. You may lean on your money-making skills. You know, I can make all the money in the world I want. I got all that I need. Uh, you may lean on your intellect, your friendship-making skills, right? Your service, your looks, your humor, um, your talent, but if you build your life on any of those foundations, okay, if you build your life on any of those foundations, then your life will come tumbling down eventually because the storms of life will cause the market to crash, right? The storms of life will cause the brain and the beauty to fade. Someone more talented than you, more influential than you, more intellectual than you, more savvy than you will show up and the humor will dry up and the relationship skills won't seem that very good anymore and the foundation will crack and life will come tumbling down. This is reality, guys. This is anything else you build it on that will happen. I was uh, a couple years ago, there was this gal named Betsy Sharkey. She uh, wrote a review of a, of a film, um, a comedy film, and she was making, making this comment. I thought it was interesting. She made this comment about just the idea of how fickle we are and how we have to move on to the next thing and nothing we ever build on. And she was talking about humor. This is interesting. She said, the sad truth is that we fall out of love with comics almost as fast as we fall in love with them. She said, Chevy Chase's pratfalls were funny for a while. Eddie Murphy's rap was hysterical until it wasn't. Vince Vaughn's deadpan delivery was special, then not so much. Jack Black's eye-arching uh, outrage was a hoot, but short-lived. She said, Adam Sandler's idiocy, well, I'm not quite sure that was ever very funny. It, it certainly completely lost whatever charm it had, right? And she's just like, everything, we just move on to the next thing, because nothing ever works. And she's just talking about just humor in that sense. But we do that with everything in life. Nothing, anything we build our foundation on, we, we have to keep 
keep kind of building the foundation, right? We've got to find something else because that crumbles, that falls apart, and we've got to find something else. And we talked about this uh, the last couple weeks, right? The reason that none of these things will work for you, the reason none of these things will work for your life to build your life on is because nothing can carry the weight of your human soul, okay? There's no object, there's no person, there's no event, there's no activity, there's nothing that will actually be able to hold up, right? The structure, the weight of your soul is so heavy that any foundation you lay it on will crumble that foundation. It was never meant to do that. No matter how or nature you build your walls, no matter how brilliant your LED lights are, how wonderful the furnishings are of the building that you're building, they won't bring you unity but disunity. They won't bring you stability but instability because your foundation is faulty. You say, Chris, how do I, how do I know if I'm building my life on another foundation other than Jesus? How do I know? The answer comes is, can you still live? Can you still function if you lose everything you have besides Jesus? It's hard to evaluate, right? You can theoretically say yes, but when those things are challenged, I was talking with Joanna Bradley yesterday in the hospital, right? It's a big part of her life is, you know, being, being, being possibly taken away from her, right? That's a huge question. Can I still, can I still move on? Can, I, can my foundation, can I, is it solid enough to make me keep going? The answer is yes, right? If you lose that relationship, will your life be over? If your parents divorce or your, your child walks away, do you, do you dig a hole that you can't emerge from? If your reputation gets shot, if you lose your job, if someone you love dies, do you want to take your own life and be done with it, right? This is where the challenge comes, right? What is my foundation? What is underneath all of it? What am I building my life on? What can I, what, what can I live without? It doesn't mean that those things won't be gut-wrenching, painful things to walk through, but it will mean that you can keep going because they're not your foundation, right? That's why the old hymn says this, right? On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is what? Sinking sand. Every other ground is sinking sand. What, and they can be, it can be good things, right? It can be good things. But whatever else it is besides Jesus, it is sinking sand. And it will not hold up the weight of your soul. All right? That's number one. Number two, we have a job. We have a job, okay? Uh, verse 10 uh, says we have to get to work here. So verse 10 says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it, and then take care how one builds on it. So Paul laid the foundation of the church with the gospel, with Jesus. And the members subsequently following, the members, the pastors, deacons, all of them, began to build on that foundation. And if you notice, the language is important here. He says the word um, building, they're building, and their and builds, plural, is a present tense plural. So what that means is like it's something that's continually taking place. It's not something that was done. The foundation's in past tense, been laid, right? But the building is continuous. It continues to go. And so we mean that what that means is the church, the church is a building project, is something that's not complete until Jesus returns one day. We are still building, think about this, we're still building the church today that was laid on the foundation of Jesus. We're still building the same church that the apostles were building back then. We're part of a long line of godly men and women who have been building before us, and they have now passed on that job to us to keep building. The church didn't start with you and me, right? It didn't start in the 21st century. It didn't start in the 20th century. It started a long time ago. And we're continuing to build, and this long line of people have gone before us, and we've been passed on the tools. So each member, through the ages, are to pick up their tools and help build the church. So, so why? So that the gospel can keep going forward for the next generation to come. You see, 
That's why we got to keep building. We're never done until until our dying breath, right? We're still building. We're still going. The people in Corinth who were first reading this letter would have understood what Paul was talking about, that it was a lifetime job building something. Because back in those times, up until like the Industrial Revolution, it took years, decades, centuries to complete these large buildings, right? It wasn't something that you just pop up and, you know, in a year and it's done. Um, you think of the, the Herod's, Herod's Temple that they were familiar with that was around during Paul's time, Jesus' time. It took 70 years to build with thousands of, tens of thousands of workers. It took 120 years to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome during the Reformation time. It took 200 years to build the, the, the Notre Dame of Paris, which was in flames earlier this year, right? You know about that. Uh, many workers and through all these different projects and all these different buildings would die before the buildings were ever complete. They would never see the completion of the building. That's what Paul wants us to see. It's not complete. We're, we're still building. We all have something to give to it. We all have a lifetime job of building the church. We all have tools called our time, our talent, our treasure given to us by Jesus to use for the job. You say, I thought, I thought the pastor's job was to build the church. I've heard that a lot. Um, is that what we pay them for? <laughs> Maybe you've said that. If you did, it's not funny. Just so you know. Um, actually, the pastor job, which may be new for you, again, the pastor job actually is to help equip you with the tools to build the church. Right? So actually, the primary job is the member of the church to build the church, and the pastor's job is to help equip you to do the work the best you can, right? And help keep them all unified, make sure the, the job is, is going well, and everyone's getting along, and, <laughs> we're, and we're moving forward, right? That's the pastor's job. Listen to Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. He gave, Paul says here, shepherds and teachers, that's pastors, his word shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ, right? For building up the building, for working it up. So each member of the construction crew has particular responsibilities. And the soundness of the building will be dependent on the soundness of each member's contribution. This means, guys, that every one of your jobs is meaningful right? Every job matters. No one's job is insignificant. No one's job also is more important than the other. My job is not more important than your job, okay? I know we, we tend to in Western, you know, suburban America to make my job more important than your job in the church. In actuality, we're all just as important to the church, okay? And this is one of the problems that was taking place in 1 Corinthians, right? They were, they were arguing, right? Uh, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and he's better than this guy, and I'm going to follow him. And they're lifting up these individuals as being super important, um, other than they are. And that's why in verse 21 down here, Paul's going to say, hey, stop, stop boasting in people. <laughs> Just stop it. Stop, stop thinking someone's more important than the other, right? This is ridiculous. We're, we all got a job to do, and we're all just as important to that job. And so Paul makes a point here, right? He says here in this, this verse to watch out how we build. In other words, we can build the church the wrong way, or we can also just not do our job at all and cause some of the walls of the church to kind of topple over over right cause many kind of spiritual casualties as it were in this project and the gospel gets snuffed out it doesn't go forward so the question is how are you building or how are you doing at your job in the church you say wait a minute i don't i don't work for the church i don't get paid for the church i don't have a job at the church according to jesus you do just don't get paid for it, okay? We all got a job. We all got a job. Whether you're paid or not paid, whether you work at the kids, whether you work as a pastor, you work at whatever, you work at administration, it doesn't matter if you get a paycheck or not a paycheck. We all have a job to do at the church. So how are you doing at your job? Are you doing work? 
Do you even know what your job is? Right? We have to ask that question. Do you even know what your role is? Do you know what you're supposed to be doing? You have been uniquely gifted. And 1 Corinthians is going to talk a lot about this. We're going to get chapter 12, 13, and 14. We've all been given gifts, right? We've all been given tools. Um, don't think your job is insignificant or not needed. And also don't begin to think, you know what, I don't even need to be a part of it. That's the other part of our culture, that we have people that say, oh, I love Jesus, and I, I don't like the church. I don't want anything to do with the church. It's like, um, that doesn't jive with Scripture, right? <laughs> if you're a Christian, you've got to love the church. This is what God is building. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was a, a pastor, a preacher back in, in England, in London, uh, back in the uh, 1800s. Uh, brilliant speaker. He, he, said, he said this. He said, I love this illustration. He says, I know there are some of you who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord, but I do not intend to give myself to the church. Now, why not? Because I can be a Christian without it. Are you quite sure about that, he says. What is a brick made for? To help uh, build a house. It is of no use for that brick to tell you that it's just as good a brick while it's kicking about on the ground as it would be in the house. It is a good-for-nothing brick. <laughs> so are you Christians. I do not believe that you are answering your purpose. You're living contrary to the life which Christ would have, would have you live, and you may have much to blame for the injury that you do. Right? If you're a brick, you're ready to be in the house, not kicking about in the dirt. Right? That's the role. I'm supposed to be part of the building. I'm supposed to contribute. I'm supposed to give to, I'm supposed to work in it in some capacity. Whatever time, talent, treasure God's given me, I need to work at this capacity. All right, number three. We have an inspection. We have an inspection. Inspections, though a hassle, right? If you finish your, your home project you got something, or, or a project you're doing at work and you have to have the inspector come through, uh, it sometimes can be really annoying and really maybe picky and really look at certain things very carefully, but it's an important job, right? Especially if you're building a very large building, right? You want to make sure that things were done correctly. If not, you have lives that are at stake, right? People's lives are at stake um, if buildings are not built properly or with the right materials. How many of you have, uh, have lived in a place before that it was kind of, you know, not built well, right? You've built in a, <laughs> I, 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 when I was in college, started my first year of seminary, I lived in uh, Northridge, California, and, um, and there, there was a place that I lived in, my apartment, that was, uh, I guess it was an apartment, you would call it that officially, but it was, uh, it was not built well, let's put it that way. Um, even as I, I laid in bed, I think I told you this before, I had um, looked out my window, was the McDonald's nightlight, you know, the big arches were right there, yellow, shining through my window every night along with the guy at the base of that, the guy who lived, who had his home underneath that McDonald's sign, who had Tourette's, who gave me vocabulary that I don't think I ever want to use again. Um, this is what I listen to every night, you know. What's the word I'm looking for? Serenade. Serenade. Thank you. Serenade. Yeah, I got serenaded by this guy every night with his... his uh, choice of words. And so, um, so I'm living, I mean, it's, and it's like, it's bad. Like, I, every time I walked up the stairs to get to my floor, you know, I was, I was thinking I might come meet Jesus, because it was like, it was ready to topple over, you know, that kind of building. That, we've all, you know, we've seen these kind of buildings like this, right? Um, and, and that's what's going on. The materials are not good, right? The workmanship's not good. Uh, that's what's going on with, with some of these places. And so, you think through all of that stuff, Paul says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be manifest. For it says the day will disclose it. And he talks about it being revealed by fire and fire will test it. So Paul says Jesus is going to do an inspection. He's going to do an inspection of each of our work in the church. He's going to do an inspection. And it's something he says is going to happen on the day. You see that? The day. And what is that? That means that's when you die or when Jesus comes back, right? That's the day. It's the day you stand before him, which we all will do individually, right? And we'll have an inspection. 
Now, people misinterpret this text, uh, just so you understand, so make sure we don't get this wrong. First of all, this, this fire testing thing isn't that Jesus is going to decide who did enough work in the church to get into heaven. That's not the test. That's not the fire. That's not what's going on there. It's not judgment of our salvation, as even it says here, the person who suffers loss will himself be saved, even though through fire, right? So it's not an issue of our soul. It's not an issue of our entrance into heaven. That's not what's going on. Um, because, again, even no matter how shoddy the building may be that we build and the effort we put in, the foundation we have is still Jesus. It's not going away. Also, the fire's purpose here, as it says, is not to punish. It's not to destroy um, it's not even too refined, right? The Catholic Church a lot of times uses this, this verse to talk about purgatory, right? As if, as if that exists. It's not in the Bible, okay? That's not what it's talking about. You don't go somewhere and work off your, you know, your sins for millions of years and hopefully earn your way back to heaven after you die. That's, that's nowhere in the Bible, okay? It's appointed the man wants to die, and then comes judgment. That's it, right? There's only one time you stand before God. It all has to do with what you do with Jesus, okay? So that's not what's going on. The fire's purpose, it says here, is to disclose or reveal the quality of our work as Christians. Okay, that's what the point is here. You say, so what is, what is this inspection then? What's going on? It is Jesus' evaluation. It's important for you to understand. This is Jesus' evaluation of your love for or lack thereof of the church. That's what it is. That's the context. That's what's going on here. The things that will last, um, the things of gold, silver, and stones, the things are the things that you did in the local church to promote unity and build the church up so that the gospel went forward. As long as those things were tied to that, those were things that will last. The things that won't last, as it says here, the, haw, the, the wood and the hay and the straw, are things that you did in the local church to promote disunity and distract from the gospel. And that can be done, by the way, as much by inactivity as activities. Don't think that, well, I'm just not doing anything, so I'm good. Okay? It can be inactivity as well. Remember, again, the whole context here. Paul's still arguing from chapter 1, verse 10. You can look at it. If you flip your pages over, if you look over the other side, as I do on mine, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you agree, that there be no divisions among you, that you be united. Okay, that's, that's where he's, everything is coming from that verse. So he brings this up here, this whole, this whole judgment idea. He brings this up here because some are building in such a way that, as it were, they're swinging their hammer around, right? And they're hitting people instead of hitting the nails. Um, they, they're shooting their nail gun, right? And they're giving puncture wounds to others instead of putting them into the wall. Uh, others are still just hoarding all their tools, right? And they're kind of sitting there hoarding all their, they're not using them. They're just hoarding them, sitting down, going, you can't use them. I'm not going to share them. They're mine. And they do nothing, right? Th- these are the different things that are going on in the church that's happening, and, and he says the result is that the walls are starting to crumble down, right? The walls are starting to fall. And, those, and here's the point. Those staying outside the church building, as it were, are seeing it fall apart, and they're seeing the walls come down. Maybe they're getting hit by some of the walls that are coming down because they were getting close, right? They were close to coming to the church. They were close to coming to the body of Christ, close to coming to Jesus. Walls are coming down, right? Disunity and factions are happening in the church, and they're like, no, nah, I don't want anything to do with that. They walk away. That, that's what he's saying. That, that's the kind of stuff that's going to cause it to burn up, right? So this means, that, this means practically, and again, this is, this is convicting, so just follow me here for a second. <laughs> this means you can be a Christian, you can be moral, you can make good decisions for your life, you can raise your children well, you can stay faithful in your marriage, you can be a hard worker, hard working employee, hard working boss, 
and either never get plugged into a local church or become a member and just take up space and do nothing to advance the gospel, and you will stand before Jesus and enter heaven smelling like smoke. You're like, I don't like that. Okay, I'm just telling you what it says. <laughs> that, that's what it's talking about. Everything you built your life on will be burned up. This means that the decisions you make in life, let's just get practical here, should be seen through the lens of how will this decision in my life affect the gospel and my role in the church. People don't think that way, do they? Right? We make big decisions in life and like the issue of my, my, my involvement in the church or my contribution to the church or my contribution to the gospel going forward never becomes a factor for thinking through these big decisions in life. I mean, I had to, when I work, worked in Hollywood and I had these, this church plan, I have a ton of young people who make all kinds of foolish decisions. <laughs> and, they would, and they would get a job. It was a very transient city. And they would get a job, and they would, and they would give like, oh, I got this great role. You know, I got this role in this film I'm going to do, and it's, it's taking me to Toronto. I'm like, great. Is there a local church? There? Oh, well, no, I didn't think about that. Is there, is there a good church around that area? I don't know. I never thought about that. <laughs> I'm like, you got to look at that first before you start taking these responsibilities and these roles and these jobs. you got to make sure there's a place you can get plugged into, Right? But th- those decisions, that grid was never there. And Paul's saying, we've got to have that grid for thinking through those things. This means, practically, that your parenting is incomplete if you don't foster a love for the local church and your kids. This means your marriage is faulty if it doesn't have an impact on the gospel through your local church. This means that your work is flawed if it doesn't help you promote the gospel through your local church. It all has to come back to, how does this affect my role and my contribution to the local church? That's what Paul is saying. If it doesn't, it says it's going to be on fire. Do you see how significant the church is now? Do you see how important? That's why, he's, remember they're arguing, they're fighting, they're disunity. Their world is all about the wisdom of the world, right? They were all about selfishness and self-promotion and what, what can I do for me, right? And they were all arguing and Paul's going, you guys don't understand the eternal consequence of this. Like you you got to come back together. You got to be unified. You got to pull, pull the oars and go the same direction here. Because we've got to get the gospel. We've got to work together because this is eternally important. You say, what's the reward then? I know some people ask about the reward, right? We live in a Western world, a Western society, where we're obsessed with rewards, right? This is not a participation trophy that you get as a Christian. Uh, the real essence of the reward is the response of Jesus. You go like, well, that's not much of a reward. Well, I would go back and ask yourself, like, are you a Christian? Because if you're a Christian, that is the essence of the reward, Right? The response of Jesus. In Luke 19, 17, it talks about Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. The Christian's heart is wanting to hear that. I want to hear that from Jesus. I want to hear him say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. Uh, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 5, he'll talk about that each one will receive his commendation from God. His, his commendation, right? That's what he's talking about. So God is taking notes on how we are building, specifically how we are building unity in the local church and promoting the gospel through the local church. Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So he's also taking notes of how we have either wasted the time and talent treasure he gave us or how we have used them to sow discord and break apart his church. Listen, you, you don't want to be that guy standing before Jesus in the end. Right? And he looks at you, you stand before him, and he, he tells you, hey, buddy, it's all going to burn up. It's all going to burn up. I'm, I'm going to still let you in. Right? You're my kid. You're my child. You're in. But it's all going to burn up. You know, what you gave your time to, your money to, your energy to, it's not going to make it. 
It's not going to make it. All that effort means nothing because you did nothing for the local church. You had no contribution to the gospel going forward. You built a good life. You were a good person, all that stuff. You love, you know, you love Jesus. That's great. That's good. I appreciate that. That's great. That's the foundation. But everything you built on that, it's all going to burn, right? Because you had no love for the church. Listen, if Jesus came back today, or if you go to meet him today, and you stand before him on this inspection day, how's it going to go for you? That's a tough question to evaluate, right? Think about that. How's it going to go? Is it going to be a great day? Do you say, well, you know what? By God's grace, I feel like I'm, you know, I've loved the church my whole life. I've, I've used, used my time, my talent, my treasure the best I know how to, to, uh, to advance the gospel through my church. And I, I, I do feel like, you know, I'll hear well done, good and faithful servant. Well, praise God. That, that's wonderful. I hope that would be all of our evaluations. Or, or some of you think, you know what? I hope that day's not soon. <laughs> that would be a tragic day uh, because I spent more time building my own kingdom than Jesus. There's a lot of things in my life that, quite frankly, are not contributing to building Jesus' church. It's really building my own reputation and my own world, right? Well, hopefully, Lord willing, you got time, right, to change that. And that's, what, that's why we're looking at this. As uh, Maximus said in Gladiator, <laughs> what we do in life echoes in eternity, right? And he's right. There is actually truth to that point. Uh, you and I will never, think about this, you and I will never have another chance to be the church of Jesus to a lost and dying and hurting world. When we die, we will never have the opportunity again to be Jesus' church to a lost and dying and hurting and broke world. We get, we get to think about now, we, we get to move the hand of God through prayer to ask for healing for a hurting soul. We'll never have another opportunity to share Jesus with someone who is lost. We'll never have another opportunity to care for those who are sick, to serve a meal to those who are starving, to comfort the dying, right? To get the gospel out to unreached people groups. We'll never, never have another opportunity to open our homes and share our clothes and food with the poor and the needy. We'll never have that again. We have the unique opportunity right now in this little sliver of time called your life. It's really small compared to eternity to contribute and give and build the local church and to get the gospel going out, we have that opportunity right now. Don't waste that. Don't waste that, right? That's what he's saying. Martin Luther, the reformer back in the 16th century, said he had, on his calendar, he had two days on his calendar. He had today and he had that day. That was it. Those are two things. And so the question is, what are you doing that will withstand the fire on that day? What are you doing today that will withstand the fire on that day? That's how we need to see and think about through each of our days. All right, number four. We have a resident. Even though we're continuing to build the church uh, to the day we die, we find someone has already taken up residence in this building. And it isn't our buddy. It isn't our mother-in-law, right? It isn't us. Sorry if you're mother-in-law. I'm going to throw that in there. Um, shockingly, we find that actually it's God. God has taken up residence. And, and now the building isn't just a building we find out. It's not just a structure going up. It actually takes form and becomes a temple. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. It's interesting, the, the, the language used and the materials that are used, this whole, uh, the things that were listed previously, all the materials for building, are all things found only one place in the Old Testament. You know where they are? Solomon's temple. All those materials are found there. You can go back and find that in the Old Testament. All the materials were used for Solomon's temple. And so that's what he's talking about. And think about how shocking this would have been to the original readers, right? We always got to think through that. Like, how, did, how would they have perceived this? They were a small, ragtag group of people, right? They were probably gathered most likely in their cramped uh, kind of uh, small house church where like four single guys called home or something, right? This is it. This is where they are. This is their house church. Uh, and they're primarily Gentiles in this church too uh, who had very remote access, if any, to the temple itself, right? They had a temple and they had a court of the Gentiles, which is kind of the outside court area. You really couldn't go in if you were a Gentile, a non-Jew. 
yet Paul says that they are the temple now of the Holy Spirit. Then consider the temple, as understood in the Old Testament, was a place that the Jews would visit with the express intention of meeting God, right? So they would do. Also, there were two words used in the Greek language for a temple or a holy place in the Greek language. One was for temple grounds, kind of like the outskirts of the, the outer courts of a temple area. And another word that used in the Greek for a place that Didi would dwell was inside of, the very center of that temple area, as we would understand that, the Holy of Holies. Guess, guess which one Paul used? You are the Holy of Holies. Wow. You are the inner part of the temple. You are the very center of, that, of God's presence. <laughs> and then consider what happened in the Old Testament when the Spirit of God showed up in the temple. Listen to this, 1 Kings 8 says this, when priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. So here, here comes the Holy Spirit. So that the priests could not stand to minister before the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. They couldn't even stand up. God's presence came into the temple, and they all like fell over. And Paul says, that's you now. <laughs> that's you. I mean, this, this was the, the place that the high priest, only one guy could go in once a year, right? He goes in once a year, he comes in with bells, bells on his, around his waist, and he's got like a rope tied around his waist. You say, why did he do that? Because when the bells stopped jing, jingling, right, they knew to pull him out with the rope. All right, he died. Let's get him out of there. <laughs> we're, we're not going in to get him because we'll die too. I mean, it was, it was terrifying to go into the presence of God. And so here we find, though, the very essence of God, the glory of God, the Holy Spirit of God is not tied to a building or to a particular place anymore, as it were, but to a people when they are gathered together as the church. Do you realize this is not talking about you as an individual? I know it's hard because we have English, our plural and singular are both you, okay? So let me, let me give you what he's actually saying in two different ways of saying it, one northern, one southern. You all, all right, are, are God's temple, or y'all, okay, are God's temple. That's what he's saying. Y'all are, right? God's spirit dwells, dwells in y'all. All right, there we go. That's a good one, right? That, that's what he's talking about all of us. When we're together, the Holy Spirit is right there. So he's not talking about individuals. Paul's focusing on the church as the corporate place of God's dwelling. Some of you say, well, why is the church a big deal? You know, why, I mean, why is it gathering? Why is the church gathering together? Why is it such a big deal? I mean, I, mean, I can get better coffee you know, my, friend, my best friend's coffee or something, right? If I, if I wanted a lecture, I can go download a podcast or, or uh, get a TED Talk or go to Butler and hear a, hear a speaker. If I want to hear music, I can go to a concert down at Bakersfield House or the Old National Center, right? What do I need the church for? I mean, there's community service organizations that are helping the poor and the disadvantaged and the single mother and the homeless. I mean, there are all these things. Well, what do I need the church for? And I say, you know what? Those things are, those things are happening, yeah, and, and, they, and they're good, all right? But, the only, but only with the people of God, the church gathered, are you going to enter the temple of God and encounter the very presence of God? It's the only place you're going to encounter the very presence of God. Do you believe that? That Jesus Christ is with us through his spirit right now. Think about it. Of all the places Jesus could be, Jesus has chosen to be with us this morning. And not just us, but all churches that love Jesus. If they're gathered together to, to worship Jesus, to sing to him, confess sin, right? To open the scriptures, learn about him. Jesus is there. Jesus is present. The Holy Spirit is present. One more thing on this before we move to the next point. Do you know that um, the Romans, which were, of course, was part of the Roman Empire, right? Uh, they called the Christians, the Gentile people, they called the Christians um, atheists because of this truth. Maybe you never heard of that before, but they called them atheists. You're like, Christians were called atheists? Yeah, that's what they were called in the Roman Empire. They were called atheists. You say, why was that? That's because everyone had their systems. 
Everyone had their religions, their priests, everyone had their temples, and everyone had their sacrifices. You remember way back when we first started 1 Corinthians, we talked about the city of Corinth. They had temples everywhere, right? They all had their temples, they all had their gods. But the Christian, but Christians didn't have that necessarily. They didn't have, have that physically. It just made Christians quite unique and significant. Imagine the early conversation on the streets of Corinth between a Christian and an unbeliever, right? They would ask him the question, where, where are your priests to your gods? Uh, we don't have any. Jesus is our priest. Uh, what about your uh, sacrifices to appease your deities? Uh, Jesus is our uh, sacrifice. He is our deity. <laughs> where are your temples for your gods? Where are those at? We don't have any. We are the temple of God. You want to encounter him? Come, meet, come, come with us to church. Right? I mean, can you imagine like, how, how unique of a worldview? That's why they called them atheists. They had no outward form of processes they had to go through to make themselves right with God. All right, number five, we have upkeep. We have upkeep. Paul now moves to the fact that we're not just building the church, and the Spirit is not just dwelling in it, but we also all have a role in not just building it, but protecting it. Um, and it, it really is going to talk about here, the, protect it from false teachers and also practicing church discipline. Neither are very popular today. Verse 17, very strong language. If anyone destroys God's temple, God's going to destroy him. That's pretty strong. God's temple is holy, he says. You are that temple. Remember, Paul is still dealing with discord, right, and, and divisiveness. And as I said a few weeks ago, uh, you don't want to mess around with Jesus' church. And we find today that one of the main reasons you don't want to mess around with Jesus' church is because God dwells in that church. So to bring discord or to bring division is to attack God himself. If you went home today after our gathered time together, and somebody is throwing rocks uh, through your window, and they're spray painting the side of your house, and they're doing donuts in their SUV across your lawn, um, you would take that personally, right? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? It's not just an attack on my house. You're attacking me. This is, this is my property. Like, what are you doing? Well, likewise, an attack on the church, an attack on God's people, is an attack on God himself. He takes it personally, he says. He takes it personally. Now, this is not, he's not talking about here a person who is a believer who is building the church. It's not the person he's talking about. It's not even the believer who maybe doesn't invest or doesn't build well in the church and gets into heaven smelling like smoke, as it were, with all their life's work kind of going up in flames. This is what the Bible would call kind of a wolf in sheep's clothing. And we find out that uh, the people who would destroy the church, this is so important for you to know, the people who would destroy the church are not those outside the church. I know a lot of you think that, oh, it's those people out there, you know, and out in the world, and they have these crazy views and, and, you know, different morality views and laws, and they're the ones that are threatening us. No, they're not. The threat, the Bible says, comes from within. The threat always comes from within. Who, who, what was the threat to Jesus? Who turned him in? Someone inside. It was an insider, not an outsider. It was someone who was really, really close. This is why you have language like this. This is in Acts 20. Paul says to the church of uh, Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And here it is. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. In the book of Jude, chapter 1, 3, and 4, says, Beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people, look at this, have crept in unnoticed. They've crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So men and women will arise from your own number who will creep in to distort the truth and lead people astray. How do they get led astray? How do people get led astray? 
by people in the church rising up, teaching false doctrine, living a false morality, and then encouraging others to follow them. This is why church discipline is such an important aspect. And the language that Paul uses here is very similar to the language he'll use later to talk about church discipline. This is part of our upkeep. We're all supposed to be involved in this. Matter of fact, this, this concept of church discipline is so important that we do membership classes out of four of them. We spend one devoted entirely to the subject of church discipline. It's not something very popular today. And, and then in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, we'll deal with this in more detail, he talks about this whole process of church discipline and why it's important. Uh, and specifically, he talks about that we all have a role in this, right? We all have to watch out for the attitudes and the actions that will lead to disunity and lead to discord. We all need to be careful. We need not be deceived, right? Look at verse 18. Let no one deceive himself, right? We need to be very careful about this. Christians can become very self-deceived, right? People can become, we're, we're easily deceived, right? You ever watched, I used to watch, the only reason I used to watch American Idol was just to watch the self-deception, right? The people at the beginning who think they can sing and can't, right? That kind of stuff. I and mean, we're just self-deceived people, the wisdom of this age, right, is, is this individualism, is the wisdom of the age he talks about here. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, then become a fool. So the wisdom of this age is individualism. The attitude of, of look out for yourself, right, get yours. The wisdom of this age is to complain and not submit yourself to any kind of authority because you are your own authority, right? So when it comes to God telling you to be committed to the local church, to submit to the leadership, to pursue its purity, to lose our life that we might save it, to be selfless, servant-oriented people, that is foolishness. It's foolishness to the world, right? It's foolishness. It's, it's, it's moronic, and actually, that's exactly the word Paul uses. The Greek word for fool is the word moros, from where we get our word moron. That's where it's from. That's, that's where we get it from. So Paul's like, you know, be a moron to the world by being committed to loving and building Jesus' church and promoting unity because that's something that's completely contrary to the world's view. Lastly, number six, we have insurance. Paul ends with hope, verse 21 to 23. We have, we have a lot of threats, right? A lot of inclement weather that threatens to tear down the walls of the church. But Paul tells us that all of that is in God's hands, all those elements. He is sovereign, and, and we have all that we need in our foundation, who is Christ. Look at verse 21. All things are yours. That's a shocking statement. All things are yours. Whether Paul, Paulus, Cephas, world, life, death, present, future, all are yours. It's crazy. Because God has everything in his hands, the whole world in his hands, therefore, he says, we have no need to be afraid. Right? You are Christ, and Christ is God's. He's got everything, and he's got you. And so the things that threaten to divide us, like, like, like people, or a worldview of individualism, or trials, or suffering of life, or even death itself, anything present, anything future, can't separate us from each other, or from God. Does that language, if you're familiar with the New Testament, does that sound familiar to you? Paul uses the same language later in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. I am sure that neither death nor life, angels, rulers, things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, you say, how is that possible? How is it possible that none of these things, even death itself, anything in life, all the things, how, how is it sure that none of this will ever separate us from Jesus and nothing will ultimately separate or break down the church that Jesus is building? Back in 2004, 2006, uh, we lived as a family in Mobile, Alabama. That's why I can say y'all with authority, I said earlier, right? Um, it was the first time, it was my first kind of full-time pastoral job, right? And I'd been working with youth ministry, things like that, but now as associate pastor and and on August 29th, 2005, a Category 5 hurricane was 
called Katrina was headed right for us there in Mobile, Alabama. And at the last second, right, it took a turn and went over and hit Mississippi and Louisiana. As you know, um, the results were devastating. And we as a church decided for the next year, two years, three years actually, that we were, gonna, we were housing in our gym. We actually housed lots of churches and organizations. They came and slept on cots and went over and drove over and we just helped rebuild houses. I mean, for years. I mean, it just was because it was so devastating for all those places on the shoreline. And I remember uh, I walked on the coastline of uh, Gulfport, Mississippi there, and I saw what was Holmes at one time, completely gone. I mean, we're talking, I mean, there's nothing left because the ocean water just took everything that was there. When it went back out, the current just took everything out. It was out in the ocean. It was gone. But you know what? In every single case, there was something that was still left. You know what was still left? The foundation. The foundation was still there. And you know what we did? We built new homes on the very foundations that were still there, right? That, that, that's what he's talking about. They were building. Nothing can take away, no matter how big the storm, nothing can take away our foundation. Even death itself can't take away the foundation. God's not going anywhere. He possesses heaven and earth. And yes, we need to work, and yes, we need to build, and yes, we need to get the gospel out. But God has taken the very things, the very things that threaten our existence, and has turned them on their heads so that now because of the death of Christ and our faith in him, right, death now has turned from an enemy to a, to a welcome home. Listen to uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way. It says, our, our great captain, speaking of Jesus, has opened a cleft in the pitiless walls of the world and bids us come through. He's gone down into death, and he busted out a hole in the other side, and he says, come on through. I've got you. I'm just going to bring you right through that dark, that dark time, and I'm going to pull you right through there. This should make us want to take some risks, right? Foundation's not going anywhere. We can take some risks. We can put ourselves out there. We can invest our lives into eternity by loving Jesus' church and using our time, using our treasure to build that church. Paul Tripp, a uh, Christian counselor, put it this way. He says, your life is much bigger than a good job an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively shaping them into his likeness, and he wants you to be a part of it. That's the church. That's the church. He wants you to be a part of it. So as we, we think about this and we go to communion, understand that God's most loving plan for you, his most profitable place for you is a wholehearted relationship with the local church. Hey, I, I get it. There, there's sometimes you don't get along, right? We're family. It happens, right? If you have kids, they don't always get along, right? That's how it works. It's family. It's difficult at times. There's hardships we all go through at times. There's difficulties, and we, we need to surround each other, encourage one another. As we talked about last week, we stand shoulder to shoulder and we move forward. We stop the friendly fire. <laughs> we stop looking at each other and shooting each other. We move forward together to see the gospel go forward so they will know us, as Jesus said in John 13, by our love for one another, right? So as we go to communion, if you're a Christian today, we take bread, we take juice to remember Jesus' body and death, and we give our offerings as a response, and we take some quiet time to reflect. How are you doing? How's your work in a local church? What are you building your foundation on? If you don't have a foundation of Christ, Everything else is worthless. You can do a lot of work in the church. Let me tell you that too. You can do a lot of work in the church. You can be, you can be a pastor and not have a foundation of Jesus and have it all come falling down, right? You, you have to have the foundation of Christ. Do you have that? If you don't, we'd love to talk to you about that. If you do have a foundation of Christ and you're sure of that, how are you building, right? What's going, how's the building going up? How are you contributing? How is your work? Let's pray. Father, thank you for opportunity to talk about the local church. Thank you for your love for the church. God, you said that 
in the Gospel of Matthew that you would build your church and uh, death itself wouldn't stop it, God. Death itself wouldn't stop it. It will continue to go forward. And then, God, as we think about that in our life, we think about our role, there is always a situation where, where God, you, you, you take people home to be with you. There's always situations where you take, um, take people away for, for job transfers or different things that go on, and there's always spots to fill in. There's always the next man up, next woman up, next child up, next teenager up. Um, God, help us to take ownership of the church that you've given to us. Help us to build, no matter how young, no matter how old we are. Help us, God, to pour into what we have, to give what we have in support um, of your church to see the gospel go forward. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.